0: Hello, I'm John Vickers, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we speak with noted writers, artists, and scholars, and others to get to know the person behind the public image. Our guest today is the world-renowned actor for the stage and screen, Kevin Klein. Kevin, I'd like to welcome you very much to Profiles. Thank today. you very
1: much. Pleasure to be
0: here. Right it's now. also been an enormous privilege and pleasure to have you here on the campus of Indiana University, where... This week, President Michael McRobbie bestowed upon you an honorary doctorate of humane letters for your accomplishments on the stage and screen. So congratulations.
1: Thank you very much. I'm deeply honored.
0: Now, for our listening audience, uh, this is a a welcome home of sorts uh, for you to Indiana University, where you did your undergraduate work here in the late 1960s and early 1970s. So what's it feel like to be back? Uh,
1: It's extraordinarily uh, nostalgic and as Yogi Berra said, it's deja vu all over again. It's uh, unchanged in many ways, the campus, but uh, it's the same, only different. It's actually even prettier. It's one of the more beautiful campuses that I've ever visited, and I nice. toured the country in a rep company for four years, and I've been on a lot of college campuses, and it's absolutely one of the most beautiful, and I look at it now, and I think, whew, things are landscaped uh, even better. I mean, there's beautiful rock formations and flowers. And nice. Show Walter Fountain. I don't recall having all that f- floral <clears throat> extravaganza around it. It was just a fountain. But it's beautiful. It's just a big, in the fall, it, there's uh, there's no place more beautiful.
0: And there isn't. Uh, the Midwest no. – the colors in the Midwest mm. are extraordinary. Yeah. And this campus is, is perfect. Yeah. So so you grew up in St. Louis. So Mm -hmm. as a young man growing up in St. Louis, why Indiana University?
1: Well, I, at the very last minute, uh, of course, helped by the fact that I didn't get into Georgetown, uh, where the the headmaster of my high school in St. Louis said, you should go to Georgetown and study foreign diplomacy Hmm. there because you're good at languages and little else, and you're (laughs) diplomatic. And I think by that he meant you're the class clown, and you but you get away with murder somehow <laughs> uh, my s a t scores were not uh, all they should have been and um so then I thought, okay, I didn't get in there fine uh, I think I want to be a musician right because I studied from the time I was twelve or thirteen, and luckily, my parents were very close friends with Harry and Edith farbman Harry was on the piano uh, the violin faculty here and edith was on the piano faculty she was my first piano teacher and he was the concertmaster and assistant conductor of the st louis symphony so they helped arrange an audition for me and um, i came and played a little a couple of bach preludes or something and they let me in provisionally if i i had to come to uh, summer school sure uh to get some theory and and a bit of practicing in because I was playing in a rock and roll band and yeah. I had a very eclectic and still have a very eclectic taste in music but I did not have the discipline and it was clear to me after a semester or two that I was way <laughs> way out of my depths I could I could at best I I could aspire to be a mediocre musician so, so. I wanted to compose. I, wa- I was fascinated by film music. Sure. I, liked to, I wanted to compose film music. I wanted to conduct orchestras. You know, I just started way—it's like at, at the age of 35 thinking, <laughs> I think I'll take up professional football or <laughs> ballet. You just—I did not have the training—the uh, the discipline right. in so deeply instilled in me that, you know, from an early age—and I was surrounded by great musicians— Right. Who did have that discipline, and I would you know put in my two hours a day of practicing at uh, from ten to midnight every night for the first couple of years, but I also had in the back of my head, I want to try take an acting class sure so I think it was the first or second semester I took acting one o one and got sort of hooked
0: so so after um uh, acting one o one and and the experience of being on stage and and prepping for a role and rehearsing and all of that. Um, is there a single defining moment where you thought, "Okay, it's time to change. This is this is something that I think I can do, or at least for now, this is something that I want to do."
1: Well, I remember halfway through my sophomore year, I was doing plays on the on the main stage and in little experimental theater, and while still being a music major, and whenever I'd play the piano for. The guys and gals over in the theater department they'd say, oh, you play so well, you, I hope you're not going to give that up. Sure. And then when musician friends would come and see me in plays they go, oh, you're really good at that. Yeah, I think you have I, it's something you should pursue. So yeah. um, the musicians were saying, don't do music, go do something else. <laughs> and then the actors were saying, stick with the music. So I did not have the kind of praise or oh, you this is what right. you were born to do. I had no sense of that at all. Sure. Finally, around junior year, but as I say, I, I, I could see I could see the future. Yeah. If I stayed with music, whereas I couldn't see it in um, the theater, and the theater was part of my problem was and part of my lack of discipline was the ability to sit in a room alone for hours and hours and practice. Right. Uh, the theater was much more of a communal experience it was a collaborative um not not that this i mean there's nothing better than playing music with other people sure, that's sure. making music together is the best but making theater with people is pretty exciting too i, I was not good when yeah. i started i was very stiff very physically bound up uh, very emotionally uh, limited but what, what, i think the turning point was when after my first after my freshman year in those days indiana had uh, showboat majestic right down on the uh, moored at uh, jeffersonville a summer program right? yeah okay and you could go there and the last two years I think it was one of the last years of the boat because it was deemed un worthy of, of the of river travel so mm. we had to stay moored in jeffersonville it was just across from louisville kentucky
0: less romantic that way
1: yeah, but it was still, yeah. you're still on this bobbing boat, and when you went on land, you got a little, <laughs> your legs were a little shaky because you're used to living on this wavy thing, and you're swabbing the decks and stoking the furnace for the Calliope concert every afternoon and doing three plays at night and a variety show Yeah, and living on the boat, and it was very romantic and uh, e- exciting. And, and um, most of the actors that summer decided to stay together and form a little troupe off campus at a little coffee house called the owl uh, on 4th Street and um, I think it was part of a it was a church an annex to a church or something but they let us kind of do that and they would you know, a lot of folks singing going on and sure. and we would do a, a weekly sort of satirical political review of, of that week's news and then at the at the end of my i guess it was my sophomore year and that and that's when i re, when they said you can have this theater right and run it or have this coffee house and make it a coffee house theater sure and we built a stage and built a lighting light board and lights out of uh, coffee cans and um and on tuesday nights we did uh, readers theater wednesday night was improv thursday night was uh more sort of Reviews, and on the weekends, we had a playwright nice, and we would do his plays and um, one of the plays was wasn 't a musical, but it was a play with music and I, I got to write the music for that and I started as sort of the the pianist, but then I got more and more acting parts, and I think the confidence and a sense of authorship or authority that every actor needs to feel confident on stage. Really grew in leaps and bounds that summer
0: I, I would imagine because you, i mean you're you're part of the process right and and so you're it's my stage you're, you're, I built you're, it yeah. you're building it, you're creating it so yeah. you, you have ownership and you feel like you can maybe take more risks or or you know do what you want I, I mean I can understand that wholly and um no that, that sounds like a, a, a neat uh yeah I just happened experience. to
1: fall in with the, with this group because I was yeah. on the showboat that summer and and, and then it, it became clear to me about the right. middle of my sophomore year that this is what i should be doing and not music, and I kind of segued out of the music school into the theater department.
0: That, that pre- probably gave you a, a better appreciation for theater companies in the future as well. That you're dealing with knowing, you know, I guess, what it takes to uh, present shows.
1: Yeah, right. yeah. It was a real ensemble collaboration sure. and very um, high-minded. I remember we would stay up all night, you know, putting together shows for the weekend. Right and writing manifestos of uh, hmm. how we wanted to serve the community and what theater meant and what we were about as the vest pocket players
0: so so speaking of manifestos this is the late 1960s early 1970s yeah. it was a pretty volatile time in america and and so for a student in the arts at indiana university at a big state university how did how did that affect uh, your work how did, did were you able to make statements uh, through the theater company and Take po- political stands if you wanted.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, while the, the main stage was devoted to giving the acting students the the opportunity, the experience of doing sort of known classics, and all that time, I was doing the coffee house right. stuff, and there we could be more revolutionary. And right. um, and finally, the last thing I did at the Owl was after the best Pocket Players had dissolved, and everyone, because I was one of the younger members and everybody had moved on to new york we did viet rock which is a megan and terry play that they had done at cafe chino in new york it was a very it was a anti-war play and a lot of audience participation audience confrontation sure and um it was a it was, it was agit prop theater and people yeah. would, would a couple of people burned their draft cards at the end of the,
0: the show wow wow members of the audience uh, Sure. So, so you influenced people.
1: Well, that's we certainly thought we were right. Yeah, good. I think well, we did.
0: Well, let's move you to New, to New York. So, after graduating from IU, you enrolled in the newly formed drama division of Juilliard. Yes. So, so, yeah. So, did you always know that? Okay, the next logical step is New York City, or did did anyone encourage you to go to New York and find well, your it was,
1: way? It was interesting because by then I was oh, I've just played Prometheus. I was a pretty big fish in a a relatively small pond in the theater department. And um, they had the TCG auditions in Chicago, which was, um, at that time, all the regional repertory companies' directors would come to Chicago. They also had them in New York, I think, and in San Francisco or Los Angeles. And people from the Guthrie and ACT and um, what have you would come and look for young talent. Sure. each department would send four or five of whoever they considered the, their top guys to go audition. So I went and auditioned with uh, the opening speech from Prometheus Bound. <laughs> Big mistake, <sighs> pretty uh, inaccessible, very stylized, and I didn't get called back. I was bumped, whereas the other guys uh, all got called back and you know sent on to n- with the New York audition or whatever the next step was. I thought, well, I guess it was all a, f- a fluke. I was—I'm not really—I I'm, was immediately defeated. A week later, I had my Juilliard audition. Okay. And my graduation present was that I got a trip to New York. To, my parents sent me to New York to audition, and I changed my audition piece. But I also thought, there's no way I'm going to get into this school. It's, t- yes. it's very competitive, and. But I, in a way, I learned a valuable lesson, and that is because I, I sort of didn't care so much. I didn't have so – I thought, uh, oh, what the hell. And it was a little more – had a little more fun, I think, with the audition. And frankly, they just needed my type in the class because it was yeah. the – they just instituted this advanced acting program. It's a four-year program. But because so many kids had left – or been thrown out. They right. were down to about eleven people, so okay. they needed to fill out the class. So I actually entered the third year of the four-year program, and um, one of the professors there said, "You know, we didn't have any leading men. We had all these character actors. So sure. we, we needed your type." Now, I, <laughs> I must have done something right in the audition, right, also, right. but they—I was just the right place at the right time. Okay,
0: well, timing's good. Yeah. Um, so. Um, also, while in New York, you, you became a founding member of John Hausman's company, the the acting company, which uh, had the good fortune, I guess, if you will, to be able to tour the States, right, and performing classics. Uh, yeah, again, off.
1: the right place at the right time. Hausman, we were about to graduate. We'd done a, a little repertory season. The New York Times had given – and Hausman invited all of the, the press and – not all of the press, but sort of some of the New York press and a lot That's of true. his theater friends. And – we did, uh, what, Lower Depth, School for Scandal, Measure for Measure maybe. We did like four or five plays in rep. And then he said, I, I just can't let you all graduate and go off and do television sure. or movies or something ghastly. Uh, you're trained actors. So I'm going to form a company. And, I mean, just it just doesn't happen like this. Right. We were given our equity cards and put on a bus and sent out and toured. Across and up and down the United States, and I did that for four years.
0: That's amazing. We would have little
1: seasons in New York, little three four week seasons, first off Broadway and then on Broadway.
0: Sure, sure. And you'd come through the Midwest, as, oh, as yeah. you mentioned. So, did that give you a? a what, what I guess what was that like as a young man? I mean, was it was that romantic traveling the states? Did you yeah. feel like a traveling artist or rock star or uh, no? Like, okay. like gypsies who okay. were
1: bringing the classics to the hinterlands. Um, sort of missionary work um but because Houseman's idealized dream but realizable idealism was to have a permanent classical repertory company that's sure. american bringing the classics uh, right, to right. major cities to faraway cities to universities we did some morning shows at high schools teaching programs yeah. where we would do a little residency for a week in a town and we do workshops with the kids, and then uh, and do our shows in rep. And it was it was a, you know so many ki- kids they either go to New York or L.A. or if they right. come out of drama school, they're not given a place to now put all of what they've learned into practice. We right. were. It's like the old English repertory system where you finish drama school, then you'd go and do rep. That's what they all did: Olivier right. and Gilgood and all those.
0: I love the, the the noble gesture that you allude to, and and it's it is trying to bring the arts, trying to bring the classics to the people, and it's a it's a matter of access. And and we're going to talk about Joe Papp here in a moment, which is also uh, his mission was access, you know, mm-hmm. to the arts. Yeah. And you find that a lot in the arts, whether it's whether it's theater, whether it's music, whether it's visual arts. It seems as though artists are in tune with wanting to share their message, wanting to share things with people.
1: Especially performing, artists. performing we, we're, artists. We're nothing without
0: an audience. So, right, yeah,
1: right. We, um, we're there to, uh, to share, right, for sure. Right.
0: So before we move on to Joe Papp, I, I think we're going to go to uh, a piece of music. So you've chosen a few songs that connect with you. And since we're still in the, say, the early 70s here, um, we're going to play Honky Tonk Woman by the Rolling Stones, released in 1969. Uh, is, does this piece of music have any particular place in your life?
1: I I remembered uh, when I was doing, the Pirates of Penzance. Jumping ahead a few years, Linda Ronstadt was, the soprano. I remember her once saying that we were talking about the Rolling Stones, and, and I, I was saying how I loved Honky Tonk Woman. She said it's considered among rock people the quintessential rock and roll nice. song. And when I'd see the Stones in concert, as soon as the cowbell, Dick, ding tick, ding ding, yeah. and it plays place. I was in Wembley Stadium and watched everyone, including me, leap to their feet. It was just, that groove was just so incredible. And then I had a drummer tell me, you know, that's a mistake. If you listen, it's as it starts, the cowbell thing, Keith Richards apparently comes in way on the offbeat or way off the onbeat. Um, And it's it's really hard to replicate because we tried to cover it in a rock and roll band I was in at one time. Whether it's apocryphal or not, I love to think that that incredible groove came out of a mistake, a felicitous mistake, like just being in the moment or or something happens and you react to it and magic can happen.
0: we Okay, so welcome back to Profiles on WFIU. I'm John Vickers, and our guest today is actor Kevin Klein. So before we listened to The Stones, we were starting to talk about uh, Joe Papp. And, mm-hmm. and so before you, you met Joe Papp, had you seen performances outdoors in the public theater?
1: I graduated from IU uh, in mid-year. Because I had switched out of the music school, I lost 22 hours of credit, and my draft board said, you can go another semester, and I was stalling for as long as I could before I had to face the the horrible inevitable of being drafted. So I was accepted to Juilliard, went to New York, and um, auditioned for the summer Shakespeare in the Park and got a a job carrying a spear, basically, and um, other heavy objects. Um, and understudying one or two parts. Sure. And we did Henry the Sixth, Part One, Two, and Three, and Richard the Third. And we had a marathon one night because the public theater really was sort of the, right at the beginning, and Shakespeare in the Park was having financial troubles. So Joe Papp decided we'll do a marathon, and we would, we uh, would start the Henry the Sixth, Part One, at seven o'clock. We would go all through the night, and at six thirty in the morning, the cast of Hair, a show that came out of the. Public theater, sure. Would come on stage and sing "Let the Sunshine In," and it was a magical night. It was it was a, a major event, and that was my first exposure to Joe Papp because okay. he came and spoke to the cast. Say, "We're going to do this thing," and he launched into Henry V's St. Crispin's Day speech. Nice. We band of brothers, we you know, for he today that sheds blood with me shall be my brother. And he just was like kind of segued from telling us the nuts and bolts of how we were going to structure the evening into Henry V. And that was that was my introduction to okay. it. Okay.
0: What, what what did you think about the the public public theater's mission of you know trying to provide free Shakespeare?
1: It was I thought I thought it was great. Yeah. I mean, and it was certainly a, a wonderful summer. I learned a lot, and there was this magical thing about performing outdoors. That right. um, knowing that Shakespeare. Before they moved into the inns of court, they were doing outdoor. It was in broad daylight. We were doing it in the evenings, uh, of course, um, with artificial light. But uh, somehow, being out in the elements was ex- extraordinary. Sure, and sure. the fact that it was free, and the Joe Papp fought very hard to keep it free because this the city, the mayor, the, they said, "No, you, you've got, to, you can, we'll right. build the theater, but you've got to charge money." He said, "No, it must be free. It must be." accessible to everyone in New
0: York. And and it's amazing that it's still going, right? Still going strong. Yeah. So so, um, over time, there are many great actors that that grew up through the the public theater. And I know that over the years, you've continued to go back and perform as as well as uh, other counterparts like Meryl Streep has. But have others like Martin Sheen or Christopher Walken, James Earl Jones, do you know if they continue to go back as well?
1: Uh, Yeah, Chris and I just did Well, I I saw Chris play Iago 10 years ago in the park. Okay. And we did The Seagull with uh, Meryl Streep. Mike Nichols directed it. It was uh, Chris and me and Natalie Portman and Philip Seymour Hoffman. And it was an extraordinary cast. Marsha Gay Harden. And uh, Chris and I shared a dressing room. He's a wonderful, fascinating, sweet, sweet man. I thought – because I'd never met him. I thought he was – going to be very strange sure. he's not strange at all he's delightful once you had a taste of it we all like to go back and Chris did Mercutio and Meryl Streep did Juliet and I did Romeo in a sort of concert reading version of Romeo and Juliet two summers ago nice. and, we, and raised 2.2 2 million dollars oh for gosh. the public theater uh, it was a very expensive ticket so uh but that was I no and then last summer we did a concert version of Pirates of Penzance as a, another
0: fundraiser. Okay. Nice. And and so speaking of Pirates of, of Penzance, um in in that version, the the one a few years ago, did you play the Pirate King?
1: Yeah, that was the I guess the next thing I did in the park. It was right. after, you know, 4 years in the acting company and uh, a Broadway musical and then an, another Broadway show, a a dramatic piece by Michael Weller called Loose Ends, and then Pirates of Penzance. It was going to be four weeks in the park, Gilbert and Sullivan. It was the 100th anniversary, I think, which made that we didn't have to pay the rights. It was now um, public domain. Nice. And Joe, who was obviously a Shakespeare lover, also happened to love Gilbert and Sullivan. And he had this crazy idea of, let's get Linda Ronstadt and Rex Smith and kind of do a pop rock, just contemporary version of it. Sure. And... um, we did that, and then it moved to Broadway, and then we made a movie of it. I thought it was just going to be a four-week romp in the park.
0: Yeah, what was the total commitment after, between the film—by the end of the filming of the project and, and, say, whatever press tour you might have had to do? About
1: two years out of my life. Two years. But great fun. And, yeah. and because of that, I got to know Joe Pap, who said, you know, you've, you've got all the right equipment for Shakespeare— is that something you're interested in? I was like, Yeah, <laughs> I, this is my last Gilbert and Sullivan, as far as I can see. Yeah, that's what I really wanted to do. So we started talking and Good. planning, and and we and we did Richard the Third, which was the f- play I was carrying a spear in when I first got to New York.
0: Was he appalled that you were carrying a spear earlier, or that's just how you grow up through the ranks? Oh you know? yeah, no, yeah.
1: it was perfectly. I mean, he doesn't. Okay. If I said, Hey, you remember me, the third guy from right. the left, and uh, Henry the Sixth, and Richard the Third, no, I, me- I remember meeting Joe over the years because then I, I understudied Raul Julia when I left the acting company, okay. which was that company that came out of that first graduating class, which sure. I was lucky to be in. And I had to kind of go back to square one because we were on the road most of the time. And I thought, OK, four years is enough. I've got to get real and starve and do what all actors do, <laughs> learn how to wait tables and all that. And one of my first jobs was being the standby for Raul Julia in Three Penny Opera, which Joe Papp was producing when Joe Papp had Lincoln Center's Theater for a few years. And I had just seen it, and it was this extraordinary production, and I got this call saying that the understudy is leaving. It had been running for about 12 weeks, and he'd had enough, and would I take over and i did and it meant going to the theater every night and sitting and waiting for raul julia to get sick or, and he never did and he told yeah. me he said, you will never go on i go on unless i am dead <laughs> and I said, okay and and it was true yeah. and i never went on but then um he was replaced by philip bosco and phil got sick and i did go on finally and i did that for i don't know about 12 weeks and uh I guess I worked on a soap opera okay, well, I, and made a couple of commercials, things I swore I would never do.
0: Right. But you're paying the bills.
1: I, yeah. Right. And reality had suddenly arrived.
0: Well, before we, we move on to your film work, which um, I, I can't wait to talk to you about— um, is there a thrill of being in front of a live audience that really can't be duplicated for you? That is there something that you really get out of your theater performance work that you don't get out of film or other things?
1: You know, I did theater for ten years before I ever did a film. The thrill—it's scary. The more I did it, the the, the better I got. The sure. less nervous I got. I'm still nervous on the first the first performance, the first preview. There's suddenly an audience, and right. you know, you've been rehearsing for four or five weeks, whatever. But now there's people there. You, you, it suddenly turns into this other creature, and it's exciting. But I, I, I'm less and less nervous the, the longer I do
0: this. Is there ever a point where um, you kind of feed off of the audience's reaction? So, where you know that you're really affecting somebody with with a role? I mean, do you ever get that feeling? And I know the lights are keep you from seeing the audience often, but
1: yeah. You, you you can sense, of course, if one person coughs, right. you think, okay, I've lost them. You know, he may just have the flu or something. Right, right. But right. It's, you can get really neurotic about it, and but if a lot of people are coughing and it is contagious, oh, he coughed. Well, then <clears throat> I've been wanting to cough for the last five minutes, and it can start a, a terrible uh,
0: epidemic. You know, it, it it happens more than it should, and in, in these uh, yes. days, it seems uh, yeah. even more so. Okay, let, let's move on to some film work. And, and I'm going to start with a quote from Lawrence Kasdan that was mentioned where he said that uh, Kevin has had a really charmed actor's life. He has gone back to the theater repeatedly. He works in the movies when he wants to. I guess, do you enjoy going back and forth? Do you enjoy making movies?
1: Oh, very much. It's so much fun. It's, um, it's different, but it's the same. Acting is acting. When I first started, I thought, oh, dear, i, I it's different. It's a whole other thing. No, it, it's really not. The audience is much closer. That's all if you right. think of the uh, a camera as an audience. I mean that's an oversimplification. It 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 is a different animal in many ways. But in fact you can do more on film. You can't suddenly mutter something or just give a look that's an emotional whatever reaction to something. Right. It's just behind your eyes. If you're just having a thought the camera can capture that right uh, you, no one even in the first row is going to see it in the theater so you make you instinctively make choices that are felt and heard in the back row in film you can do that too right but you can also do very very subtle things
0: right was was that hard getting used to i, I mean so you can communicate so much like you said with just your eyes or just very very sh- small shifts in facial expression um, was, was that, uh, did it take any time to get used to or not really?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, working with Meryl uh, Streep on Sophie's Choice and Alan Pakula, who directed it, w- was a great introduction because Alan said, think of f- the film, we're just going to think of it as rehearsal, right? We'll do five or six takes and it'll be like, we're just rehearsing that scene that day, which is what you do in the theater. rehearse one or two scenes and, you, and then you put it all together after a few weeks this, you do one or two scenes in a day. and But if you think... He said, just think of the, t- the takes. Uh, we're just rehearsing. And you have to trust me that I will choose the best rehearsal where it, uh, right. where it happens. And I remember he had three weeks set aside to rehearse. And we rehearsed without ever rehearsing. Because okay. Merrill didn't want to rehearse. Merrill wanted it to, to happen on camera. And I thought, that was an interesting notion. How do we learn our lines and stuff like that? Well, you have to do that... On your own, right. as opposed to you didn't have the four or five weeks of repetition and that that chance to not just learn by rote, but right. but to absorb and assimilate the lines.
0: Would, um, would you have someone to read with? Um, so would you hire an assistant or somebody just to, to throw lines at you? I did, I
1: did for a period of time. I did that. Yeah, okay. yeah. It, it sort of depends on the on the the film. Sure. But sometimes you can just sort of look at the seen the night before unless this scene with a when you have a big speech or something yeah you better better know that cold but th- the other thing i learned about halfway through sophie's choice merrill said are you saying the lines as written i said uh yeah which is because you don't have to you know if it, <laughs> doesn't, if it doesn't fit in your mouth and you just want to rephrase it this, this is not shakespeare you can write oh but I and then I argued that I liked the lines and I thought because right. having read the novel, I thought, this character has a very distinct way of speaking, the, the words he chooses to use, right. the, the the phraseology, the locution is distinct. But I did start loosening up a little okay. and um, improvising a, a bit.
0: And, and so some directors, I think, are, are certainly better at allowing the, the actors to do that than others, but Alan Pakula... He, I, I was okay. t-
1: totally spoiled. It okay. was my first film, and he made me feel like I was a veteran. Like, well, I, I'm happy. I'm ready to move on. Do you want to do another take? And I right, what? I get a choice? Wow. And he, and he also did something that very few directors do, which is to start the day with the actors, only the actors. Okay. And what do you all want to do? And then we'll figure out Right. How to shoot it. As opposed to arriving on the set and you see these tracks are down and the lights are all set up and the cable okay, wants you need to start here and end here and go to the window here and right, sit down right. here. And it's well, OK, you can work that way. It's it's nicer if the actors have been allowed to initiate it. and right. Sort of discover it. Right. And it was amazing watch, yeah. watching her in that role. It uh, well, was, well, was just and, amazing in And itself. it certainly
0: made it a more collaborative, collaborative process, I mean, to, to be able to develop those characters together.
1: Oh, it was so collaborative. And we loved each other. And Peter McNichol and Merrill and I would, whenever we were off camera and it was time for the close-up, we would give the lines, or we would change the lines to make them fresher. Sure. Because we'd already done the master and the medium shot or whatever. And just always doing things to help The other one to keep it fresh and to surprise surprise them. Do something surprise. I remember Meryl Streep saying, um, I like surprises. Don't feel like you have to do the same thing from take to take with me. And also, don't be afraid to hurt me because you can't. Okay. (laughs) So it was like a challenge. (laughs) Right. Right. So uh, I could really manhandle her. Yeah. And did.
0: So, so Sophie's Choice went on to be really a, a big success. Uh, Meryl won. Uh, Meryl Streep won an Oscar for best leading role, and I believe there was a, an Oscar nomination for writing for Alan, for Alan Pakula. Pakula. Yeah, and then you had a Golden Globe nomination, I believe, for yeah, your, your best role as newcomer well, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, which is you know for a first film, that's, that's I, very I impressive. I wasn't. Yeah, it was fine. So, so, how are those things? Those types of recognitions, those awards, the, ton, the two Tony Awards before that for uh, pirates, yeah, pirates
1: and, and, and uh, the twentieth 20th, 20th century.
0: century. So, how did, how are those things validations for you for your career? I mean, do they do they make you feel like you're on the right path? Um, I, I
1: hate to admit it, mm-hmm. but those awards, like good reviews, are something that I have always said. I, those are not why I'm here, and those are right. not important. And it's a, you know, I, I grew up in the day when Marlon Brando f- refused to accept his award, where George right. C. Scott said, I won't be part of that meat parade. And I sort of agreed. I thought, well, is, they're so tawdry and awful, and they have nothing to do with... And w- when you saw some of your favorite performances that year, not even right. get nominated, and you said, it's a, it's, it's not fair, it's stupid. But when you're nominated, and then uh, even better when you win, I started to think, certainly when I won the Tony, I thought, I guess I get, I'm getting better at this. Right. And I think it is a validation. It's however unfair or stupid or whatever else you think it is. Right. With the Oscars, it's, it's all nonsense, but actors nominate actors, directors nominate, there's their right. divisions. Right, right. So it's your peers. And they're saying, we thought this was Really good work. And so that's why when actors say, and everyone makes jokes about it, actually, the nomination is everything. Right. So I don't mind losing. It's no fun. To, it's kind of, once you're nominated, then you have, you have a real shot at losing, <laughs> uh, unfortunately. Yeah. But the nomination is important because it's your peers.
0: It's your peers and and not only important, you know, for that validation, but it, it also helps you get your next film made possibly. Yes, so, it does. so 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 yeah. there's, you know, there's career value in that as well. Yeah, and it's
1: terrible because right. it's bottom line crap if you'll pardon my French because right. it's oh look, he's got an Oscar and suddenly oh, your agent's going, "Okay, we can kick up his price." Right. And now it's it can help them you know, oh, now suddenly this actor who won an Oscar can help green light a movie right. that uh, the studio or the independent producer whatever was not that keen to
0: produce. Right. I think we're going to go into a second piece of music. And right. and this piece is the theme from Francois Truffaut's Day for Night by uh, composer Georges Deleroux. It's right. this
1: glorification in the soundtrack. And so I just thought, because I was once an aspiring film composer, I wanted, to, to me... Film was always more like ballet than like yeah. theater because it's movement with music and some, some talking occasionally. But I loved film composers and yeah. I loved certain scores from and this was just I thought this is probably my favorite music cue in a film.
0: Okay. Welcome back. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm John Vickers, and our guest today is Kevin Kline. So, with your filmography spanning about 45 feature films, of course, we, we we don't have time to cover many of those, but there's one director who you've worked with six times out of his 11 features, and that's Lawrence Kasdan. Right. So, um, your first film with him was The Big Chill in 1983. Yep. What... Uh, the The relationship started. How did I guess? How did Caston choose you, or did you choose the film to audition for? How? What was the process there?
1: I had met Larry maybe a year and a half before when he was casting Body Heat, his okay. first feature film. Sure. Um, he had written Raiders of the Lost Ark and a couple of the Star Wars things, and he was a writer. But he he made a stunning directorial debut, directing his own script of Body Heat, and he, he was meeting New York actors, and they, I went in and read. With an actress for the part that bill hurt ultimately got and that's when we first met and i was just struck by this guy this he was just his wife was with him Uh, right directors don't bring their wives to (laughs) to auditions or meetings Uh, in my limited experience anyway but he he, there was something just so real about him and so regular about him he's not from the midwest he's from wheeling west virginia but he did go to school in michigan so maybe it's that heartland thing but anyway he just i just liked him yeah yeah. um and felt very comfortable with him so then when he asked me to come in for the big chill whenever it was a year later i met with him he he had a bunch of actors do a reading in new york and then a bunch of actors do another reading in la and um he asked me to be part of that reading because he was really considering me for the, this role blah, yeah. blah. and i said oh i want to play the uh, couldn't i read for the other role the, sure. the part that jeff goldblum ended up playing i thought that was fun here <laughs> it, it certainly was but, and jeff was genius in it and Ooh. there again he was there with his wife who was going to select the music the motown music for yeah, the score yeah. etc and just this I just, we made each other laugh. We just—I just always felt comfortable with Larry. We just hit sure. it off.
0: So, so that and that's that relationship uh, now has spanned, you know, many years. Um, I, one thing that I'm always impressed with—many uh, of his films have these great ensemble casts. So, I think I think he's a, a, a really great writer for creating ensembles and creating, you know films that intertwine many different stories and many different characters Mm. very very well so you see it in Silverado you see it in uh, Grand Canyon Um, do you have a favorite uh, Lawrence Kasdan film that you've worked on or or experience with him or
1: probably the most fun was um, I Love You to Death with Tracy Ullman Bill Hurt and River Phoenix and Keanu Reeves and Joan Plowright and James Gammon and and on and on. And and the character, and it was the f- first thing I did with Larry that he hadn't written. It was written by someone else. Okay. Wonderful screenplay based on a true story of a man who, this philandering guy that his wife is trying to kill, and he won't die. He's yeah. like Rasputin. They, <laughs> and it's, it's a dark comedy that, it, it was so much fun. It was just, and Tracy... Nice. Was great, and we just just laughed a lot on the set.
0: If if he came up with another project that uh,
1: I wouldn't have to read it, I said you, sure. Okay, awesome. It's 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 a fait accompli. You,
0: you mentioned uh, we we'll speak about uh, a fish called Wanda here maybe in a moment. But you spoke yesterday about the only parts that have ever been written for you were by John Cleese, and one of them, hopefully, I'm not misspeaking. But no, I think so. One of them being Otto on a fish called Wanda, right. and. Perhaps maybe that's why it's um, such a singular character. I mean, there's, there's, I can't think of another character like Otto. <laughs> Good. <laughs> um, so even though that character was written for you, you had some input into that character because you were friends with John Cleese at the time. Did that allow you to fully embody that really bizarre and demented character because you had input in, into its creation? Or, or? I think
1: so. I was actually making Cry Freedom... Uh, with uh, Richard Attenborough, a film about Steve Biko, a very a huge, epic, kind of very high-minded and important film. And we were shooting in London, and John said, let's have a read-through of the script. Well, my mind was elsewhere, so we kind of read it, but I, I couldn't. What's happening here? Because we, right. we just kind of read it, and I wasn't reading the stage directions Oh, they're in a car there. Okay, that makes sense. So that's why he says says that line. Okay. Uh, But I was just sort of confused. And then I went back to my other movie. And then a few months later, he said, uh, I finished the, you know, I've been working on this first draft and polishing it up. And why don't we go away somewhere warm? Because being English, he wanted to get out of the the rain and the cold. Mm -hmm. And so we went to Jamaica for 10 days, just the two of us, to work on the character. And we just read through my scenes and kind of talked about it and improvised a little and he was talking about he had an idea for something and I went yeah 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 and and as he was talking I got an idea and then I said what was the middle thing you just said and I said oh that's that's good for the character let's give him as short an attention span as I have and um, that got into the movie from that and all kinds of little like what what are you going to do when you open the safe you know and see that the jewels aren't there and I, I don't know let me see and I kind of just mimed this thing and went disappointed okay let's we'll put that in and he just and then some months later sure the new script came and there was a mostly stuff about how stupid he was kind of got right. that, that part that part of it grew and i think that came out of our 10 days <laughs> so there were, i guess there was a feeling of hey this is you know i had some input here so uh, it's mine and both jamie lee and i were rather free with the dialogue and okay. we would ad lib a lot and I remember John one day are you going to say any of the lines I've written I said, oh yeah yeah you know 98% of them are his lines right. but he allowed us to embellish which is good there's some f- funny lines that ended up in the film from that
0: do you think that you could play Otto today discount the, you know the the age an older and wiser or <laughs> I, mean, older I mean do and you dumber? think you could you could play it with <laughs> that intensity and I mean do you think you could pull that off uh, I mean It's a very intense character, very, again, demented, cruel. Is that a character that Kevin Klein could play in in 2014?
1: Sure. Yeah, I'd I'd do it better. I'd like to to think. Absolutely.
0: Uh, Let's jump in our remaining time here to uh, a couple more films. And and we'll briefly touch on The Lovely, where you play Cole Porter. And was was that uh, role of interest to you because of your piano background and your music background or what what drew you to um, that, that almost film?
1: entirely because of my piano background okay. because I we we had a reading of the script and I thought, oh, I'm, not, I'm not sure about the structure and this clunky it just seemed kind of oh he's dead. Oh, I see and he's talking to Angel Gabriel and he's sort of Reminenza and, so, and they're putting on a show of his life and right. I, I wasn't quite sure that would play but I thought you know, if I just, I just want to be in that, in that music because he was a genius. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. I look nothing like him. I'm at least a head taller. Uh, He was balding and, and, but what I did know is he wasn't a great piano player and he wasn't a great singer. So I said, I'd like to sing live, not have it all, all the songs pre-recorded. Sure. Because it's more about acting than singing well. And I want to, and I'll play, and yeah. I thought this is going to get me back to the, to the practice room, nice. And it did. So I, I got to, I had to brush up my piano playing, and it was really just thrilling to be in that music for right. for whatever it was nine weeks.
0: So you've played Cole Porter, you've played Douglas Fairbanks and Chaplin. Uh, most recently, you played Errol Flynn. Uh, what what kind of additional prep do you need to do in a for a film where you're playing a st- historical figure?
1: Well, luckily, I didn't have to mimic Cole Porter, because there had already been a film of, about Cole Porter played by Cary Grant.
0: Okay. Yeah, sure. And
1: even in the film, they, there's a scene where we're watching the film, and it's just a joke, too, right. because he's nothing like Cole Porter. And the story is not; is fictional, too. They had him in the trenches in World War One. No, no, no. He was in Paris going to parties. So I, I didn't have to. And the same with Douglas Fairbanks. I he, he did maybe one talkie, but very few people know how he, how he spoke. Right. So I didn't have to mimic. I mean, I watched obviously the film, the, the talkie he did do, and he had one of those. You know, he would have gone to the Hollywood elocution school, and he was from Wisconsin or Idaho or something, and so. But he talked with a sort of Boston Brahmin accent, you okay. know, mid-Atlantic. Uh, you just none of those guys. Uh, I mean, those. It's that Hollywood. Thing Errol Flynn too. He was from Tasmania, so he had he was an Aussie.
0: Right,
1: came via Australia to London, did some rep work in London, so he would have gotten the sort of English thing, and then he went to Hollywood and and they used to sell him as a or promote him as an Irish actor. He wasn't Irish; he was Tasmanian. So, but I had to watch all the films and listen to all the interviews and try to mimic his voice as best I could without it becoming an impersonation. Right, the trap right. is to. Do a brilliant impersonation, but not act. Yeah, do you know, Merrill can do it. When she did Iron Lady, she sure. was. That's Margaret Thatcher. But there's also something happening. She's not just consumed with doing this perfect uh, imitation. Right. She's living it, and it's real, and it's immediate, and it's happening, and it's exciting. So, yeah, there is, okay. there's much more prep work sure. of, of a very technical nature sure. doing that.
0: Well, let's jump from uh, the Iron Lady to My Old Lady. Um, Good so, the, My Old Lady is your new film that's in theaters now, and it stars yourself, as well as um, Kristen Scott Thomas mm-hmm. and Maggie Smith. Jane and
1: Maggie, yes.
0: So, uh, it, and it's about a man who. Um, I, sh- I won't say he's down on his luck because I don't know if he ever had luck, but he's, he's down on himself anyway. Down on
1: the world, yeah.
0: Who yeah. inherits a, a flat in, in Paris that's under a, a viache, a, a, a strange leasing arrangement, uh, and it's stuck with a tenant who, who is Maggie Smith's character yeah. who doesn't want to leave. And so uh, yeah. did you have fun with that film? or Are you enjoying its release so far?
1: Uh, so far I'm enjoying the fact that it's gotten a lovely response and people are—, are... Um, entertained by it and amused and um, I, I thought it was a very original story the, pro- the comic premise of inheriting this guy who's broke yeah. who spent his last dime flying himself he's, a, he's had three failed marriages three failed novels he's alcoholic and bitter and, and now he's going to pay off his debts and everything's going to be fine and he gets there and finds out that not only is it not his apartment but according to the Viager laws, you have to pay a monthly stipend. You're like paying an annuity. Right. So this old person who's living there, until they die. So I really inherit a, what, a 1,200 euro a month debt. And I can't, but she's gracious enough to let me move in. And hilarity and a few other things ensue. She's living there with her daughter. And um, he just wants to... Get the place unload it, take the money, and run. Right, and that doesn't happen. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it was just unusual.
0: There are some humorous moments in the film, but it's it's very poignant. It's uh, that's a dramatic piece, and and throughout much of it. It's,
1: yeah, it's, it's sort of it's interesting you say that because I uh, some people have responded to it as a comedy, okay. and others as a drama, which I've noticed also with the Big Chill. Right. People, oh, that movie's so funny, or no, uh, that movie's so poignant and touching and yeah and that's sort of what's attractive about it to 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 me anyway as an actor you it you can't if defi- it doesn't oh it's another just falls neatly into a particular slot it's it's okay. sui generis it's its own unique thing
0: so if you're listening you should check it out okay so we're about to wrap up here so you've been back at indiana university uh, this week and has the university uh, programs and facilities in the arts have they lived up to uh, what you remember them to be uh, forty years ago? Well,
1: it's certainly as beautiful as I remember it, the campus. I'd have to take a class here to tell you if they're really up to snuff. What I what I realized though, as I heard people talking about my career and I sort of watched my or heard my life flash before my ears uh, over the last couple of days and I realized that to say you know it all started here I really you know this was my roots it's very true and I realized that I'm that what formed me as an actor and a person was my four and a half years here in the music school and then the the theater department it's like coming home yeah it's been very nostalgic and and great and and I and it it gave me a a fresh realization of how important those years were. Not that I've forgotten it, but it was nice to get a, a, a reminder nice. that I could actually, that it was more palpable that I could see and
0: feel. And last question, have you ever thought about what you want your legacy to be as uh, an artist, as an actor? How do you want Kevin Kline to be remembered uh, 30, 40 years from now? <laughs>
1: He was he was good. He was a good actor, yeah. and and versatile. I think sure. because I, was, the repertory theater experience from the acting company and playing a diversity of roles, was something I just had that experience. Listen, some of my favorite actors are actors who do the same thing every time, right? Um, and I got nothing against that. I like sort of surprising myself, uh, and if I can bring something fresh. Um, without necessarily doing the same shtick, I'm happy about that. So it, I, I'd like to be undefinable. I'd like them not that's to true. be able to, the same way I'm attracted to material, That's well, you can't say, oh, it's a rom-com, or it's right. a tragedy, or it's its own thing. Yeah. So maybe if someone were to remember me as, he, he did it his way. He did his own thing. He was good. That's, that's
0: perfect. It's been a great pleasure talking with you, pleasure and, and thanks you. for your generosity of time here coming back to Indiana University. It's been
1: a thrill for me. The program you just heard was recorded in September of 2014. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about Profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.